Welcome to Knowledgeshare with Dr. Dave, streamed on grokshare.com and broadcasted on iTunes and Google Play. So welcome to the Agile for Humanity Tucson meetup. Um, it's Saturday, December 15th. We're at Connect Coworking in downtown Tucson. Um, and basically, I just want to let you know the reason we have this meetup is because we want to talk about Agile as a practice, Agile as a life skill. Um, we want to talk about technology, startups, um, and just do a lot of great things and build a community here in Tucson. And so one of the things that we want to start, start off by is just sharing upcoming events because there's lots of events happening in the Agile community around the world and throughout the U.S. So, you know, the second or third Saturday morning monthly, we have our Agile for Humanity meetup here at Connect Coworking. Um, our next one is January 19th. Um, and, and so we'll have another presenter from some part of the world or the country who will share back great knowledge with us. And then we have um, Friday, March 15th and 16th, we're putting on a conference, um, Agile Open Conference and Agile um, Coach Camp that's coming up um, here in Tucson. Um, there's the Deliver Agile 2019. Um, that's um, April 29th, um, May 1st in Nashville, Tennessee. I spoke at that conference last year in Austin. It's a great conference for if you want to talk about tech. Um, other things that's happening is that we have the Global Scrum Gathering um, in Austin, Texas, coming up uh, May 22nd. Uh, and then we also have the big Agile conference, which is this is, you got like something like 3,500 Agilists from around the world, was coming up um, August 9th, um, August 5th through the 9th um, in Washington, D.C. So I'm looking forward to attending those conferences as well. But you know, look out for our open space and our coach camp. And it would be the first open space conference in Tucson, as well as the coach camp. So we want to start building out a community here, make sure we can get you know, people engaged. Ah, and, you know, we have this good-looking guy. His name is Zach Boniker, the benevolent troublemaker. He's an agile coach. He's a friend. Um, he's based out of San Diego. Um, I've known him for a few years now, and, and he's done an amazing job. Um, in, in terms of being engaged um, in the Agile community. Right now, he is um, the chair of, what, what's the name of that group that I am participating in? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you are a, a team member on the Collaboration, Culture, and Teams track for Agile 2019. Yeah, so he, he's also leading that track, and you know, wherever we could help, we always help each other. Um, so, few sponsors. Agile Alliance is one of our sponsors. Um, my company, Nalshare. Um, you know, we help people achieve awesomeness. So, we're also a sponsor. Um, and and so, that's going to be it for this part of the presentation in terms of sharing. We're going to now turn everything over to Zach because you know he has the real stuff. Why we're here, right? We're here to hear him speak and present. So. Um, whenever you're ready, Zach, just go ahead and share, and, and you're in control. There you go. Sounds good. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you for that grand introduction, Dr. Dave. I feel I feel very special. Thank you. <laughs> and, <laughs> you are very special. <laughs> thanks for inviting me to to chat with you today, and and for everyone that's listening. Um, this is a talk that I have very boldly proclaimed prosperous metrics. You know, as opposed to, you know, maybe malevolent or, or, or hurtful or harmful metrics. These are prosperous metrics. And, you know, if you've ever been to any 
conference, uh, an agile conference, or even just a software conference in general. Um, topics about metrics are, are really no stranger, right? So what makes this different? What makes this talk different? Um, really, it's in the subtitle, solving the scenarios that we struggle to measure. Uh, this talk is going to really focus, we're going to dive into metrics, sure, but it's, we're going to focus less about specific metrics and things that you should do to be using great agile metrics. Instead, we're going to look and, at three typical scenarios that we tend to face ourselves with in the midst of an agile transformation or change or just on teams. And there's struggles that at least, in, or there are scenarios that in my experience we've struggled with. Um, we struggle to measure and, and we keep wanting them to be measured and we don't know how and it's, it's a frustrating experience. So we're going to unpack those. Um, and that's really going to be the, the emphasis here. And that's what I mean by prosperous metrics, right, is, is being able to thrive through these very difficult scenarios that, that we commonly face ourselves. And before I go on to the next slide, um, Dave, let me just check if it's on my end. There's like a feedback or a noise. I don't know if it's on your end too. No, I have nothing on our side. We're, okay. We sound pretty great here. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'm good. I just want to make sure it wasn't um, interfering anything. Okay, cool. Well, as Dave said, my name is Zach Boniker. I live and work in San Diego. I have been involved with Agile for more than 10 years. Um, I like to give back to the community as, as much as I can, so I participate um, in you know little community events like this um, to you know larger um, uh, volunteer efforts like for example um, Agile 2019 and one of our sponsors Agile Alliance. Um, I've worked with a variety of companies from small startups to the Fortune 500, uh, all almost always in the context of Agile and really always focusing on organizational change and transformation. Right? How, how do we use teams effectively? What is it like as a new culture from our managers, right, to, to help enable teams? Um, those sort of challenges are really what I, I enjoy and focus on, and that's where I've spent the majority of my career. Uh, I've got some contact information here for anyone that wants, if you'd like to tweet, hey, there's my Twitter, my, my Twitter handle. Feel free to tweet during this if you'd like. Um, and my, my email, you can always get in touch with me. I try to give 24 hours, ensure that I respond to everybody within 24 hours, so feel free to connect. And there's a little blog down there at the bottom that I tend to neglect more than I probably should, but it's got musings on organizations and software and people. If you've ever seen one of my talks, you know that I love stories. Um, I'm a storyteller. I like to work with people and encourage them to use stories as well. Um, I really think that stories are a great way to connect people emotionally to what's happening and kind of create that, that, that energy and that, and that sense of passion for, uh, for a vision. So, I almost always start a talk with a story, and this talk is no different. But where I usually start with a true story, this one isn't a true story. This is a story about you. It's about you. And so I want you to imagine, as you look down at your watch, you think to yourself, oh, 10 more minutes. Oh, I'm dreading this meeting. See, about a week ago, you got a meeting sent to you by your director, and it sent the meeting invite simply said Agile Metrics. And when you inquired, hey, what's this all about? The response was, you're just going to need to give me some Agile metrics. It's an important meeting. Ugh. So as you look down and you kind of feel your stomach churn a little bit, you think to yourself, oh, what is this going to be about? I mean, how do I avoid this trap of the shallow metrics that we often use, you know, like burn down charts and things like that that fail to give the insights that, that people really need? And how do I avoid kind of a, a trap of individual metrics, right, where, where it encourages people to stay busy over working together? Oh, what am I going to do? Then you look down again and you say, okay, the meeting's about to start. So you head down the elevator, or you head to the elevator and you, you take it up to the, 
the, the, the top floor, the fancy floor of your office building. The elevator opens and you knock on the door to your director and the director says, come on in, come on in. As you open the door, you turn and you see him. Of course, there he is, looking over his, his notes and his, his reports for the morning. Big fan of numbers he is, big, big fan. Always looking at, at numbers. Then he turns and looks at you and smiles. He says, hey, it's great to see you. I've um, been looking forward to this meeting. Hey, I heard all about that product owner workshop that you did the other day with our product folk. They said it was fantastic. Yeah, you're really doing a great job. And right then you feel excited. You feel hopeful. You say, wait, this is, this is going to be a good meeting. We're, I've got a partner here on this, and, 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 and I'm, I'm feeling really hopeful and optimistic. And then everything turns gray. And he says, so, about those agile metrics I asked for you. So maybe I said that this is not a true story, right? Maybe I said I'm just making it up, but perhaps you've been there. Maybe this is a true story after all about you. I mean, I've been there before. I've had this asked of me a number of times. So about those agile metrics I asked for you, and every time it happens, I can just feel my stomach sink, right? Because we always go in a direction that, that feels, it feels in opposition to what it is I'm trying to achieve. I feel like we're starting to focus on things that we can count and numbers and numbers and numbers when sometimes I'm thinking it's more about understanding people, people, people right now. So I think before we get into exploring where this story continues, first let's kind of set the stage with mindsets that we often have about metrics and maybe even a helpful framework that can help us unpack the, the scenarios going forward. So thinking about the typical the typical mindset that exists, at least in the Western world especially, when it, in, in our businesses, maybe this quote right here is a no, is no better you know, representation of kind of our philosophy of management with, with metrics. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Do you know who said this? Do you know who said this? Right? If I polled you, would you say it was Deming? Would you say it was Peter Drucker? Or maybe you would say it was my boss, right? Well, I don't know, you probably all, you'd be right. <laughs> all of you would be right. Um, to some degree, this quote has been said in some context many, many times. But where it's become kind of a mantra of modern business, I mean, you can go on Google and search this and you'll find no shortage of motivational posters and speakers proclaiming this exact quote. But the truth is, the real quote was said by Dr. Deming, but that wasn't all that he said. He said, it is wrong to suppose that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. In fact, a costly myth. He said that on page 35 of the New Economics. <clears throat> but somehow, the part in the middle is what we latched onto. Right? So why is that? There was a great book that Thomas Davenport and Gene Harris wrote called Competing on Analytics, The New Science of Winning. Right? And I think if I had to summarize the general theme of this book, here it is right, right here for you, right? A CEO and ideally an entire executive team who constantly push employees to make fact-based decisions can change an organization's culture. And this story or this, this book unpacks the impact of using analytics in the workplace making fact-based decisions and being highly empiric. And they said it was a really great thing, and it is. But to some degree, 
this obsession over the impact that good analytics can have on a business has become the modern management mantra of it has to be quantitative or else. If you don't have data, then I mean, I can't do anything with it. If it's not quantitative, I can't do anything with it. There's a story in this book of a CEO of um, Sara Lee Bakery. His name was Barry Baraja. And a wonderfully brilliant man, as the book outlines him, he's, he's exceptionally talented. But I found a really interesting thing to occur in this book when they discussed Barry and his workplace or his office covered with data and analytics stuff and motivational. I mean, really, he was an obs very obsessive about making sure that his organization was highly quantitative. And on his desk, there was a big placard that read, in God we trust, all others must bring data quoted and attributed to Dr. Deming. But the truth is, Dr. Deming never said that. When we look it up, I don't know, the, the Deming Institute says, well, I don't know, we don't know who said it, maybe George Box or someone else, but it wasn't Deming. But here we are with the person that says, everything must be factual and true on his desk with the quote, emphasizing his belief, but he never said it. So I don't bring this up to call out anyone or to say that the things that we believe are wrong. It's more just to create empathy and understanding that if we're going to dive into scenarios when people are asking for, you know, real business needs, they have real wants because they want to do a good job. This quantitative effect often exists. And sometimes it's so, it's so strong in our minds that we we often overlook, <laughs> we overlook things just to be able to feed that bias for our preference of data. So we can't just simply go to somebody and say, well, you know, the things that you're looking for, the quantitative information you need is just not going to help us. No, I think we'll need something to help ease people into being able to understand and look at data in different ways uh, to solve problems. So perhaps a framework would help us. And this is a framework that I'm going to propose for what I'll just call prosperous metrics. And I believe this framework can help you unpack almost every tough scenario you're looking to solve. It's very simple. There's really just three parts to it. Step one, the foundation is measure up. What do we mean by that? It means that if you have individual metrics right now, we're going to get, abandon them completely. Everything needs to be measured up. We need to turn our eyes towards the system. So if we're heavily focusing on measuring individuals today, start by trying to move to teams. If you're looking at teams now, move away from teams, try to go product, or try to go to your entire organization. If you're just measuring the org, hey, take a step above that. Go to your product, right? Measure up. Try to get the highest level look at the whole that you can to understand what are all the interactions of the parts within that system what is the outcome of their interaction? Because that's what truly matters. So once, you really, so once you're measuring up and you're looking upwards, we'll need a success metric. Notice it's just one success metric. This is the metric that you select that represents the system's activities together to generate the business outcome that you need. Right? So success metric is highly systems focused. It doesn't look at individuals. It's not considering people. Right? And you likely will need just one. It is the outcome. It is the interaction of the system. And so because it's your success metric, it is long-term. It's going to persist. It's the thing that we need. Okay? And once we have the success metric, on top of that success metric, you have one to many improvement metrics. 
improvement metrics are different from a success metric, uh, a success metric because there's a fundamental, there's two fundamental questions that we can ask with them. So, in order to, to test an improvement metric, we can ask ourselves, what decisions do we intend to make with that metric? And the decisions that we make are designed to improve to on the success metric. And question number two, we can ask and clearly state to people, the improvement metric is no longer useful when these conditions are met. So by definition, an improvement metric is useful until it no longer is. They're short-term in persistence. They don't, you know, the goal is to make it go away, not to keep it. A pro tip, we often confuse success metrics with improvement metrics. So we generate lots of metrics and then we persist all of them. This framework takes the strategy of identifying one that is the best representation of the systems, you know, interactions together, and then the improvement metrics that we need to help deliver on that success metric. Again, with the goal of making that improvement metric go away. All right. So let's rewind back in time. Let's rewind. Let's go back to the office now. And as you sit down with your director, he looks at you and he says, look, the bottom line, I mean, our, our, our VP is coming down hard on me. The bottom line is that we need to show that Agile, that we are more productive with Agile, that people are more productive. Everything is more productive with Agile. I mean, that's kind of that promise, right? How can we show that people are more productive? <clears throat> Man, this is, this is the, the scenario that I find myself in the most. I need metrics to show that we're now more productive when rarely we had those metrics to begin with. But now that we're using Agile, we should be more productive, so I need metrics for that. Well, what's the impact on me? I mean, the first thing I think of when I find myself in this tough scenario is that this is a qualitative trap. Right? Everything about productivity sounds great. Everything about productivity sounds like I want that. Right? I mean, what would you think if I was talking to you right now? I said, okay, I've got this great idea. I got this great idea. This wonderful business plan, this really cool idea. We're all going to get together, right? And we're going to start working this bit. We're going to create this business together. We'll make sure that people are highly unproductive, really unproductive, and it's going to be great. It'll all work out, right? Of course not, right? So everything about productivity sounds like something that we really want and need. And so that amplifies the quantitative effect, right? Because quantitatively, Productivity is easy to grasp. And it's probably something like, like when I say in a single word, what is productivity to you? You might say output, right? Items delivered, like delivery, right? So it's quantitatively easy to grasp. So we're triggered right there. This is it's something I would, the quantitative side, I, I, I can count it. It sounds good. I want this, right? But in software development, productivity is mattingly invisible. And it's really perceivably inefficient, right? If I asked you, I can't really, I'm not standing in front of you, so I can't, you know, make my, do my little act of what a productive developer looks like. But, I mean, really, what does a productive developer look like? Well, what, what does a productive developer look like? It looks like somebody who's thinking, thinking about somebody, maybe then asking somebody about the thing they're thinking of, and they give them a response, and that person thinks even more about the response, right? Everything about software development really is that, that prototype of, of, of knowledge work, right? So it's not like an assembly line. It's hard to see productivity. So we feel that we need a metric in order to be able to manage it. 
It's such exactly. a challenge. Yes. So just just to pipe in. Yeah. Um, don't you ever see um, software developers doing their happy dance? <laughs> What's the happy dance? <laughs> you know, they throw out a big happy dance after to get something to work. <laughs> um, I, yes, I, I have actually seen that before. Yeah. Okay. So when we're triggered by this need, right, to measure and productivity, what do we often do? Right, well, I think you've, you've seen it before, right? We basically treat output as productivity, right? We go back to the old school mentality of being able to look at things moving and, and activity and bodily activity, and we try our best to use that as a proxy to measure productivity, right? So what's the first victim? I mean, the first victim is almost always velocity. It doesn't matter if it's Scrum or not. I mean, you, we could be saying we're not using Scrum, and the company is still probably going to have heard of this idea of velocity and ask for increase. We need to show velocity, and we need to make sure that it's increasing. We've got to rise velocity, right, because we need productivity to be rising. Right? Or, or we create things like these burn-down charts, right, where we create a made-up line kind of based around where we think something should be that really can't be measured. And then if a measurement, which is a guess, is above the line on a day, that's bad. And then if it's below it, that's good. More pro right? But the whole thing is just made up. Or, well, so again, we'll go into this counting, right? We'll go and we'll start asking people or asking teams how many things from the backlog they'll deliver. And they say they'll do 15. And we say, that's pretty good, 15, that's a pretty big number. We like that, right? And maybe they'll even compare it to a team. They'll say, hey, um, you know, the, the, the good team says they're going to do 15 this sprint. Hey, what about that, that underperforming team that we think is a problem? Oh, they said they're only going to do eight. Uh, we knew it. We knew it, right? So we start treating these numbers as some comparison of productivity, right? But even worse, then we go to the team, the team that says, hey, we're going to do 15 items, right? And then at the end, they only do 10. And then we start to rage about it. We start to get upset. We're like, oh my, 10 is less than 15. You know, we create these say-do ratios to try to make sure that they're you know, equal. That if you say you do something, you stick to your commitment. You're really productive. Right. And so, and then when that does kind of falls apart, we really get triggered, right? Then we just start counting everything, right? We start counting hours, the number of commits, we start comparing estimates, we look at forecasts, we just start counting all of the things. And the reason that we do this, right? The reason that we do this, even I mean, and this is super harmful, right? And the reason we do this is for that same author that that wrote Competing on Analytics, Tom da Tom Davenport, in his great, his phenomenal book, Thinking for a Living. He says, to make knowledge work productive will be the great management task of the century. So everything that we typically do, we struggle, right, with the problems making to showing productivity of knowledge work, you know, effective. We struggle with it because we've missed the transition away from the activity and the count and the things, and we haven't yet fully grasped across all of our organizations that really the key to understanding productivity in knowledge work is really about the effectiveness of their system of work together, right? So we help our director here. We help our director and say the key is less about being able to show productivity, but the key that we need with Agile, Agile can help us see that the effectiveness, that our system of work together is effective, right? So any measure that we use in the name of productivity must be a proxy to what really matters, 
It's the effectiveness of our process, right? And I'm talking here as it relates to process, right? Not product. I'm not talking about, you know, the effectiveness of meeting customer needs. I'm not talking about the product aspect. We're talking here about the scenario focusing on, I need to be able to show that people are productive in the process. And instead, we're helping people realize that the key to unpacking this scenario is understanding, is our system of work effective? So how do we do it? Well, think back to the framework, right? We're going to take a measure up approach and we're going to look at a success metric that represents the outcome of people working together, right? And so our first, the, the success metric for this scenario, measuring successful, not productivity, but effectiveness is your lead time. Now, I think there's going to be many metrics and many things that you could use here. So understand that I'm giving you a proposed kind of a generic way to solve a typical, you know, scenario here, right? Your context may differ, but what I propose is most companies could benefit by understanding the success of their system of work by looking at lead time. And lead time is really the entire system of work, right? How long does it take for when we commit to something that it gets delivered? How long is your lead time? I've worked with a number of companies where they've told me, we have got to get our teams to be more effective. They have got to be more productive. I need an improvement in team development. And then when we looked at the entire value stream and we looked at that lead time, where their lead time was nine months, their teams were operating in a two to three week development you know, cycle. period. Somewhere in there is around when things were getting done. So they're asking for improving productivity around two to three weeks when the entire lead time was nine months, right? So looking at lead time as a success metric, I mean, really, that's the bottom line of how fast it takes for, uh, or how quickly Agile can help us get value to customers, right? So what are, what are our improvement metrics then? If, if lead time is going to be how we, the, the success metric for this productivity, what metrics can we use to help us improve lead time? Well, if we're using lead time, we have to use cycle time, right? We just have to. Um, <laughs> that's because lead time is really part of the Little's Law equation, right? So cycle time, where lead time is your whole definition of from commitment to delivery. Here by cycle time, what I'm talking about is how long does it take for things to go through the activities, right? So like just the period of when a team starts it to when they finish, that could just be a cycle time measure. Right? But looking at all of the cycle times across the whole system of work, it helps us make lots of great decisions, right? Like we can actually identify where is the delay. And by the way, what does our delay cost? Are we even focusing on the delay? When it takes us four months to be able to get through some funding process, right? But we're worrying about two weeks of productivity development team. Yeah, we're probably not really focusing on the delay if we're putting our emphasis on teams. And we can say that there, when, what conditions need to be in place to make this improvement metric go away? Well, again, this is part of Little's Law, right? Little's Law is basically lead time equals your cycle time times work in process, right? So we can't really make cycle time go away if we're using lead time, but what we can do is detect when the constraint changes. So if development teams really are the bottleneck, once we've identified that their cycle time is no longer the bottleneck, then we know that the constraint has changed and we can stop using cycle time with those teams. Okay. So I have a question for you. Yep, fire away. 
Uh, why don't you uh, give us some examples of, you know, of types of delays, um, just for context? Mm, types of delays? Help me understand what you yeah. mean. Like maybe um, one, one thing that may cause um, a, a delay is, um, let's say requirements or stories not prioritized would be one way to trigger a delay. Um, they're yeah. not well elaborated, you know, things like that. Yeah. Architecture yeah. is not in place. We don't have an architecture runway. Yeah. These are many, many possible causes of delay. Yeah. Um, you know, ha having, uh, having nobody really responsible for measuring the cost or the value of the work that, that we do really kind of creates us, uh, creates a situation where we're really just responding to anybody's opinion. <laughs> some new fire has happened or some, you know, very important person's opinion said we should be doing this instead. So we start switching, you know, tasks all over the place, right? Which in increases our development time. Um, that could be a symptom. Um, I mean, we may have a process that is highly gated and we may be dependent on meetings or activities to move things through gate or through phases. I've seen a um, I've seen a process before where they had to go through a kind of an approval board to be able to move through processes to be able to get you know various activities done, and in some cases you would wait upwards of four weeks for the meeting to happen. So when I'm ready to actually make a decision and go to the next state, I wait four weeks of just waiting for a meeting because of all the important people's schedules. That was the only time they could have a meeting where they were all together. We had to wait four weeks to be able to move something through, right? So there's going to be all kinds of different causes of delay. I mean, at the team level, um, you could have delay all the way across from, you know, your technical practices, right? Not being able to effectively test or, or, or you know, put tests in our code to not having a technical knowledge or, or domain knowledge around what the work is that we're actually doing because it's brand new. There's all kinds of causes. Excellent. All right, what else can we use? What else? Cycle time. That's a good improvement metric for improving lead time. What else can we do? Well, I'm going to propose one for you. Time to fix build. Wait a second, Zach. Time to fix build? Do you mean a development build? Yeah, exactly. How long does it take for us to fix a development build? That's a quality metric. No, it's not. It's not a quality metric at all. There's nothing about, there's nothing about a build working that improves quality. A build working just ensures that the maximum amount of quality that we're able to deliver at any point in time is possible. <laughs> so the time it takes for us to build, to fix the build, is a wonderful improvement metric to improving lead time, right? because it improves our build, or it gives us an, an, an understanding of the development environment that our teams are in, right? If the time it takes to fix a build is, let's say, five days, we know that there's a lot of churn going on at the team level. Right? and that there's a lot of probably conflict and issues with an integration and understanding what a working build is, right? So we are delaying, we may not be delaying our ability to really improve, well, I mean, I would say it's probably gonna create some quality problems for sure, but we are definitely delaying our ability to get work through the system when it's at that team level, right? So looking just at the time to fix build helps us make some pretty interesting decisions. Are we going too fast? Is this a sustainable pace? And by the way, what is our normal state of development? If we are worried about the effectiveness of being able to get our, our product out through a you know, team activity, 
then what is that normal state? Do they tend to operate on a very stable build that is always up and that you know always has the latest code across our teams? Or is it always kind of in flux? But I especially like the idea of the improvement metric of, I'm sorry, the success metric of a lead time, while the goal clearly would be to get it shorter, to actually improve the effectiveness, it might not necessarily be to make it go shorter. We might need it to be a little longer so that we can improve conditions of our teams and for our people you know, working uh, to build software, right? We might be trying to go too fast. It might not be sustainable. How do we know that the time to fix build is no longer useful, right? Well, again, in, until it's no longer useful. Um, this is, again, going to depend a bit on your context. But, you know, for example, if you detect that uh, we've looked at the trend over the last three months and typically a broken build is fixed in the next working hour, you don't need this anymore. <laughs> Looking at this measurement isn't going to help you improve the success metric any longer. Right. Any questions? That's a on very this good one? metric. What? I said that's a very good metric because I, I was just thinking of um, a, a company that I was working with and uh, it, it took 24 hours to complete the build before you could yeah. move software into an environment. So yeah. you could there just you imagine how much time it takes to fix that build when it's broken. Yep, there you go. Yep. This is really good information. Um, I'm sitting here thinking about my job and what I do. And what's really sad is that we have markers on a lot of our systems that we use, but nobody manages those markers. So yeah. I put in a request to purchase something uh, to my management to approve. And then yeah. it goes over to position to purchase. Yeah. But, and I'm thinking, okay, now where's my part in that? Um, what's my normal state? Well, my normal state has to be almost two or three months out in advance because the manager may not look at the email, even though he gets a notification. The acquisition team thinks there's something more important that they have to do. So the normal state can be three months, yeah. you know, wow. and I'm yeah. expecting to have it in a month. Yeah, yeah. So I, all, all great anecdotal stories and, and evidence to why some simple improvement metrics can help us understand what the impact is on that success metric of time, our lead time. There's more. There's more. I've got two more under this category of effective systems of work. So these next two are going to be sort of dependent a bit on teams working in iterations. But if our teams are working in iterations, we can use a thing called a forecast delta. Forecast delta is very simple. It's just the count of items from a backlog done subtracted by the count of things that they forecasted to begin with. So um, we started off the sprint with, say, we we're going to do 10. We finished. 8, so 8 minus 10 for negative 2. Right. Forecast delta. Well, what is this all about, right? Does it, does it look like the goal is to make it zero? Or to go, no, it's not really meant to do any of that, right? Using a forecast delta helps us make some interesting decisions. How predictable are we? Right? The more predictable we are, the more effective we are at you know, people being able to plan around the team. Yeah? By the way, how much disruption occurs around the team? And I'll show you how we look at that. And are we generally just too optimistic? Are there influences going into our system of work that are telling people to be overly optimistic or to feel like they can't reflect the truth, which helps decrease effectiveness? Right? So we can make some interesting decisions. And how do we know that we don't need this metric any longer? Well, like all improvement metrics, until it's no longer useful, the value here is in the picture. So this is more of a picture metric, not a quantitative metric. And I'll show you exactly what I mean. 
This is a forecast delta trend that I ran with a team I recently worked with. They were identified to me as the low performing team. Why are they low performing? Because they're continually missing their estimate. Every single time they say they're going to deliver 10 items and they don't deliver 10 items. Okay, let's go check it out. And so what I did is the blue is the forecast delta. It is the count of items that they delivered subtracted by the count of items that they forecasted to deliver. And the orange here on the top are the number of disruptions. And disruptions were things like changes in priority, getting pulled away to work on other things during the sprint. So what I saw in this was that, wow, not only is this team, according to management, non-productive, but the environment sure is helping them be non-productive. But on top of that, they are absolutely a predictable team. They are 100% predictable. Look at this. I can pretty much guess that if I was the product owner and they said that they would deliver 10 things, I'll just anticipate about eight. Because they're always within minus two, minus three, and minus one. They're very predictable. This is wonderful. When I saw this, I was encouraged. I thought to myself, what a great team. In fact, it's most likely, I'm guessing, this label that they have that they need to improve their productivity which keeps forcing them to you know, overestimate to try to please management. But the truth is they're highly predictable. And so I did two things. I introduced the forecast delta and I asked, and I, I shielded the team, protected them from the disruptions, right? And the first time that we ran the experiment was right here on the sprint number 19 on this. And you can see it didn't go well. The team didn't like the idea of changing some of our estimation or some forecasting techniques. They still felt like they had to, you know, really please management. It was hard to get managers to buy in that we shouldn't disrupt them. And so it went really poorly. We resisted it. And when we retrospected together on it, we said, you're right. We didn't really try this experiment. We're really not focusing on what matters. And then we did it the next sprint. And from then on, they got highly predictable. And really, we didn't have to change anything. We just needed to minimize the, the disruption and ease the tension on the team that they didn't have to show that they were improving productivity. We just needed to become more effective. And a forecast delta helped us see this. And around this point at Sprint 25, we didn't, we didn't need this anymore, and we just let this go because everyone knew what we needed to have in place to be effective. So forecast delta. What a fun improvement metric. But the value really is in the picture. All right, one more. <clears throat> Improved effectiveness with a ship ratio. So null hold ship. All right, what does that mean? Null hold ship. Null means we had no decision to make at the end of a period of time, at the end of a time box. There was no feedback loop. It was completely open-ended. We had no software, we had no customers, we had no stakeholders, we had nothing. Zero as a hold meant there was a feedback loop that was closed in which we decided it isn't the right time to release. <coughs> and one, a closed feedback loop occurred and it said, this is good, let's, let's get it out the door. Right? So by tracking the trend of, this, of these feedback loop decisions, we can make some really interesting decisions. Do we have a closed, a closed loop? Or is our system of work just a big open feedback loop to where nothing happens? And by the way, what is our system of work? We say we're using Sprint. What is it really? What is the value of our Sprint? Why does it matter? We can make these really interesting decisions, right? We can really, using this trend, 
we can really make things emerge about what's happening with our teams, right? And just like the feedback loop, oh, I'm sorry, feedback loop, just like the, uh, the, the forecast delta, the value really is in the picture. Let me show you what I mean. Hey, we, we tracked nine, nine um, iterations or nine periods of time, right? And they went, we've got nothing, 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 all the way through to the end, and then we shipped it. What is this? It's fixed date, fixed, fixed scope. I mean, like, very clearly, there's a fixed date proposition with fixed scope. The sprints don't matter. You just have to get it all done by a date. What if we went, we've got nothing, we've got nothing, then we shipped it. And we've got nothing, we've got nothing, then we shipped it. So a smaller period. You might say, again, it's the same thing. It's fixed date, fixed scope. And I say, yeah, maybe, but I think there's something else here. I think what we need is the team needs some help understanding how to reduce the size of their work. They're actually trying to get things out the door sooner. It's just that we're not really sure how that could be yet. And we need some help reducing or, or, or with our, uh, talking to our product owner around what smaller increments could be. Maybe we track this over time and it's just chaos. We've got nothing. Then we decide, no, we do have software, but we don't want to ship it. But the next sprint, we have nothing. How could that even be? But then we shipped it. The like, wh what does chaos look like? <laughs> to me, this means I need to talk to the product owner. We need to talk with the product management paradigm, right? Our priorities are changing all over the place. We're unclear of what's happening. Maybe like, so, so this is really less about the team, and this seems more like we need to attend to the product management paradigm around the team. And then, you know, you can track the trend, and we ship, 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 ship. And at this point, we're, no, we're, we're winning, and we don't need this metric anymore. So what is your ship ratio? What does this look like? You looked at teams, if they're using iterations, or even just some period of time for planning. It doesn't have to be Scrum. What feedback loops, what, is your, what are the feedback loops in your system of work look like? Okay. This simple picture, this simple improvement metric can help you understand how to improve your effectiveness, which results in improvement of the success metric. Lead time. All right. So you're... Director, so rewind, boom, back in time, and your director goes, oh, that's good. That's really good. I get it. You've helped me so much. I, I understand this. I understand this more clearly now. All right, we've got some great things that we can do, but I still have another problem. We're not out of the woods yet. Now, our CEO agreed that once we went into to, to use Agile, that our quality has to improve, and he's adamant about it. He's expecting quality to improve with Agile. But the truth is, we've never really had a good understanding of quality to begin with. I mean, customers complain, sure, but I mean, what, what do we do? I mean, how do I know that quality is improving? Oh, man, that is a tricky one, right? That is a really tricky one. Because if I ask you in a single word, what is productivity? And you might have gone to words like output, delivery, things like that. If we had a room of 100 people right now, and I asked everybody in the room to say, in a single word, describe quality, what do you think our word cloud would look like? Probably wouldn't be as consistent around words like output and, and delivery and things like that. We'd probably have just a myriad of words, which gives us really important information. It tells us that quality is a highly qualitative metric to begin with. It isn't necessarily an easy quantitative thing to measure, 
but that there's a qualitative opportunity to uncover how do we know quality is improving. Right? And I'll explain what I mean by that, but first let's ask, what do we often do? We find ourselves in the scenario, how do I know that quality is improving, so what do we do? Unsurprisingly, we ignore the qualitative opportunity and we go right to quantitative. We find easy things that we can count, almost always, when it comes to quality. What's the victim? Bugs. Bugs. We start counting everything about bugs. We start counting bugs per person, escaped bugs per team. We even do things like per story. We look at how many bugs per print, per week, per month. We create production incident reports per week. I mean, we just start counting bugs like crazy. And when that doesn't really improve quality, once we start counting them, right, then we look to more nebulous things about our code base. And code base quality is a whole other talk that I'd love to give, but we create these nebulous code coverage metrics. We start saying everything, our, everything should have a 90% you know, code coverage, on that's, and that's our quality goal. Without really understanding what that means or all the skills that may need to go into place to make that effective. Right? And so when that doesn't work and we get really frustrated, we're counting things, we've got code coverage, we've got all these nebulous things, then we start doing bonkers things. I mean, I've seen things like test cases written divided by executed as a measure of quality. I've even seen code reviews per day as a measure of quality. All of these things, especially code coverage, oh, I shouldn't say all these things. I mean, counting bugs can be useful. I don't know about Jackie Chan here and about test cases written versus executed, but you know, code coverage, these things can be used. But where I'm going to ask us to start to unpack this scenario is to completely let go of the quantitative effect and the urge to go quantitative quality. And instead, think about this quote from Tim Ottinger. He said, I think maybe a key to quality is to be really hard on systems and soft on people. And by systems, what he's talking about is the technical systems, right? The code base. So to get really hard quantitative in your technical risk in your code base, the areas of your code base that are funky. But beyond that, go really soft with people when it comes to quality. And I'm gonna say, why don't you start there? Why don't you start with people? So before we even get into thinking about what the success metric is, I want us to think about this, this truth, right? That quality is rich in qualitative info. What if you sat down with your customers and ask them about, hey, what does quality mean to you? What would the stories would they tell you, right? What information can you get from them by understanding what is their qualitative understanding, their definition of quality? Hey, what would happen if you went and you talked with your development teams? Hey, what does quality mean to you? Would those stories be the same? What information can we get out of this qualitative perspective first to then help us understand what the quantitative needs are? Okay. So if you haven't actually done this in your, in, at your company and sat down with your customers and sat down with your development teams and really first started from a story perspective about understanding qualitatively what quality is, you don't have a good guide, you don't have a good indicator of what you really need to be measuring. Those stories reveal quantitatively what quality is. But, hey, in the absence of that, in the absence of the context of your story, 
I've got to give you something, right? So here's a proposal using the, the benevolent metrics framework or the prosperous metrics framework um, to start with measuring successful quality. First time yield. Remember, we want to measure up. So we look up and away from teams as much as possible towards the end result of the activities and we create a success metric and it's your first time yield. What is the first time yield? First time yield is really simple. Um, it's just your units produced minus the units that were defective divided by that total units produced, right? So we create a ratio. You can do this if your system of work is very sequential, right? So everything is kind of its own individual process and you can't really look at the whole. You can just take the first time yield for each part, right? And multiply them together to get the first time yield of all. That's the point down the bottom right. So if you are, if you developed nine uh, units and one of them was defective, so your first time yield is 90%. It means 90% of the work that you do never comes back. What's your first time yield with your company? Do you know? Do you know it as teams? Do you know it as products? How many things that you start never come back in any way? Right? I think this is a really powerful success metric um, for quality. And I really just advocate for any company building things, delivering to customers to use it. So when we have this as our success metric, what are the improvement metrics that we need? All right, let's start with a fun one. The ratio of features versus technical risk. What is that? Well, it means over a period of time, what is the ratio of work that you do that is developing new value-based things versus We'll just call this technical risk, which could be bugs, refactoring, uh, re-architecting. I mean, it just comes down to maintaining or reworking things that aren't working, right? What is that ratio? This helps us make some really interesting decisions, right? Because we can look at this over time. We can say to ourselves, number one, is this sustainable? What is the cost, right? If 50% of what I'm doing is value activity and the other 50% is not, and we keep this up, can we sustain that? Or are we just going to run out? I mean, can, is, is this rework costing us too much? What needs to change? If so. And what does the trend tell us? If we're doing 90% feature value-based work and 10%, you know, like just technical work, and we detect, and our first time yield is 50%, <laughs> no, no, this trend is telling us we can't keep this up. Right? We're working at it, we're not putting, our code base isn't in a, in a situation where we can continue to operate this way. Right? Our first time yield is never going to improve. Right? So this trend can tell us really interesting things. But you know, if you notice the theme with improvement with measuring quality, and it was all about qualitative side, how do we know when we don't need this? Basically the developers and people tell us that you don't need this anymore. They have the time and space needed to maintain. It isn't about because you know, we've measured it in a certain way and we don't need this. It's that people tell us we don't have to worry about this anymore. We're in good balance. We've got the time and the slack in our system to be able to write good code and attend to our code base continually, right? Because that's agile done well. It's clean up as we go along. What else helps us improve quality? Yeah, I said code coverage is kind of nebulous, right? But actually getting into looking at our <laughs> test coverage 
and talking with people about what this means rather than just mandating it as a metric to be hit can help us uncover how to improve that quality success metric because we'll start to learn things like what would actually like what would actually be gained by improving it if we keep telling people you need to be at 90% code coverage and they go that like it doesn't really matter that's not going to do anything for us we need to know that we need to be able to do this first or we have to have this in place first right it can help us understand what really need what we really need to do to make test coverage code coverage be an actual useful metric right and by the way what would help us increase our trust of our code coverage right what skills do we yeah we're writing a bunch of unit tests but they're not testing anything yeah we've got 90 percent code coverage but it doesn't do anything right so what do we need to actually be able to increase our trust in our code coverage what skills do we have to develop what do we have to learn right so this is less about a, likely less about improving a process and more about developing skills the conditions that need to be in place to make this improvement metric go away are also qualitative and they're powerful our teams tell us they're no longer afraid to rework code you know, I've got to refactor this class. God is it method or God is it messy, but it's such an essential part of the code bit. But we're not afraid. We know that if we mess it up, our tests will cover it or we'll catch it. We're, it's okay. We'll never be a, a you know a couple you know undoes away from being able to come back and have a working build. We're good, right? And the teams or the people tell us that hey, the work now we're at eighty-five percent code coverage. Uh, you want to get it to ninety? The work to be able to get there. It far out, uh, far outweighs the perceived benefit, and the people working in the code can tell us that. Right? Those are the conditions. So I have a question. Yes. Um, what about you know automated functional tests? I see that this covers unit tests. Um, what about the functional tests? Do you have a bunch of those that would yield um, kind of quality from a, a customer context? Yeah. Um, any thoughts around that? Yeah, and, and th that's a good one. That's a, for, at least for the purposes of this talk, Dr. Dave, that's an, an it depends. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I don't know how to get in and really recommend to people that they use that as an improvement metric across their functional test without having more context and understanding of what it is they're building and what the structure of their, kind of their system of work looks like. Does that make sense? And you kind of see why? No, no, I understand why. Yes, from that context, yes. Yeah. But you're um, right. I, I just thought, I just thought thinking that you have, you know, very well defined stories. Mm -hmm. um, what, um, whether and, and you have things like BDD associated with that would help to yeah. um, improve. You know, so there's more that's needed beyond just just the, the story itself. You know, yeah. or, or maybe you have it structured in a hypothesis based yeah. structure. Yeah. And in conjunction with BDD would really give you um, a little bit more to do automated functional test coverage. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, no, and, and I think that, that fits exactly in how you use an improvement metric, right? What conditions yeah. need to be in place for us to evolve this or to make it go away? What decisions need to be made, right? So in your case, we may say, look, we finally have an understanding of being able to understand automated tests at a unit level and being able to get in maybe at an integration level, right? You know what would really increase our, our, our trust now is when we can start understanding more of an acceptance test and automate that to go more functional. Yeah. That would improve, okay, cool, I know what to do, 
right? So I can make a decision because of this improvement metric. I can adapt and evolve it until finally we say, seriously, we've got a pretty sweet automation pipeline that covers all the way from integration or from unit to integration all the way to acceptance and functional. The work to go beyond that now is probably going to be no, of no benefit to us, right? Yeah. Beautiful. Right. Lovely, right? So oh, back, back to rewinding in time, back to rewinding time, and your director goes, I've never thought about quality this way, and, and, and I can see it. You're right. This was so helpful. But wait, there's still one more thing. There's still one more thing. Wait. We're not done yet because, look, I was the, I was the sponsor. I was the champion. Right, that 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 said that we were going to do this big agile transformation, right? And so everybody, I've got the executives and all the they're all looking at me and saying, "What's the progress? What is the progress of transformation? How do I know it's happening? And 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 what does it look like, right? I and I don't know what to do, and I'm taking heat for this, and and I'm stuck. How can I see if this transformation that I championed is even happening in the first place? How can I measure transformation? How can you measure transformation? Oh my gosh. Boy, I'm not entirely sure, right? So we're going to need to try to unpack this, right? So I think something that can help us understand what does that even mean to say transformation? There's a organizational design consultant by the name of Karen Ribbett. And I learned from her a simple framework of thinking about transformation that I think might be able to help us here and help our director. What she told me was that if you think to yourself, the purpose or the goal is that it will be better. It will be better. Everything is going to be better. The outcome will be better. Then we're in a change place. We're thinking about change. But if you think to yourself, we're going to go through all this, and it's going to be different, that's when we're in a transformation space. Now, I think there's this implicit, there's got to be this implicit understanding that very few people, at least in our context of organizational change, would say, I want things to be different and worse. I think there's the underlying understanding that yes, it's going to be different and that different is going to be something that I prefer. It will be better for our customers, for our people, for you know, product, whatever. But if you haven't thought to yourself that it will be different, you're really not in a transformation place. You're in a change management place. So this is the secret. This is the secret right here, I think, right? Because what do we often do? We don't think about it being different. And we confuse doing because we tend to fall into the productivity, the quantitative, the outcome, the out, or I'm sorry, the output, the activity bias. And we confuse that with being and how it might be different. So what does it look like? Well, we think to ourselves, man, Thinking about doing is just way easier. You know, quantitative is way easier. If it's either happening or it's not, that's easier. So, like, that's just easier for me to measure, so I'll settle for it. And so what it looks like is we start, well, we start counting things. We start creating yes, no things. We just start renaming things just to say that they're different and new. We start creating maturity scores and trying to quantitatively assess how mature I am in things. You know, if you've ever seen a, Agile maturity checklist says, do I do stand up? Yes. Do I have daily planning or, or uh, sprint planning? Yes. You know, we just, so the easy way. Yeah? And when this doesn't work, you know, then we turn to some obscure things. You know, we read, oh, oh, I read about things like happiness metric. Oh, we can create a number for 
that and we'll start creating this happiness engine. And all of these things don't help us see what's different. They don't help us understand if transformation is happening. They don't really tell us anything at all and we get very, very frustrated. But see, again, the secret, as I mentioned before, was that the director told you what we needed to do. He said, how can I see that my agile transformation is happening? Because when we don't see it differently, if we just start adding new titles to things and just checklisting things, we get this quote from Tim. I suspect that what many call scrum is really tacos. Titles and ceremonies only scrum. And that's a darn shame coming from San Diego because I don't, tacos are wonderful and I don't like the tacos have to be labeled this way. But again, the secret is here. The director said, see it. And that's the key. The key to measuring transformation and that it's different is actually seeing the difference. What does that mean? It means that if we're going to have an improve or a success metric for transformation, we have to use a picture. What? Wait, Zach, what are you talking about? How? What do you mean? Do you mean I just go and take a picture? Hey, maybe. That could actually work, I think. Right? Let me give you a way that we can do it. We can use things that I call, we'll just call transformational sliders. Right? Using sliders, we create a picture that helps us see the difference that things are different. So, for example, we basically create a description of a cultural artifact or a behavior on one end, and then a different description of that, maybe the opposite on the other end. Right? So we have description A, description B. And then we create a slider and we ask ourselves, are we more like A or are we more like B? If we're in the middle, why does that happen? Because sometimes we're A, but sometimes we're B. What causes that to happen? But we just ask ourselves, where are we? And I've just created a picture. If we started at A and somebody said, hey, is transformation happening? And I give you this, you say, we're not there yet, but we've made progress. And I can tell you a story, a qualitative story, about what keeps us in the middle and what prevents us from being able to be always this new behavior, this different behavior. So, for example, we could say, here's two ends of the dimension about how things could be different. I could believe that numbers are the most important thing that we have to measure to know if transformation is happening. Or I could believe that a visual method is the most important thing to understand transformation. Where are we? Are we here now? Are we here? Yeah, I don't know. Right? But this is, what, this is what I mean by creating a picture. We can use sliders and qualitative information to create a visual that helps us see at a glance where we're more like how we normally are, the status quo, versus more like how we wanted to become different. So we can use all kinds of different things. I mean, this literally could look like anything. Here's an example for agile transformation, right? What if at one end of the spectrum, we had managers, our management culture, managers have a tactical problem-solving orientation, and they manage one-on-one. -on -one. And we say, we want our management culture to be different. We want managers that are intent upon creating a highly participative team instead. That is their belief and their emphasis. So we create sliders, and we sit down with people and ask, are we all the way to the right, all the way to the left, in the middle? Do we lean towards the right or left? Where are we? And the stories and the conversations that happen amongst those people will tell us where we are. Here's an example. 
I created the entire Scrum Guide and put it in a slider format. And I've been using this with companies that are using Scrum. I call this Scrum Guide Sliders. This is literally the entire Scrum. Even the verbiage on the right-hand side is um, just straight Scrum or Scrum Guide, you know, language. And on the left, maybe more of a traditional type of approach. But we could ask people and talk to teams and talk to managers and see where we would put these sliders. So this is just an Excel sheet that gives you an idea of how you could create it. There's a link if you want it. Feel free to use it. It's fun. But this is an example of what I mean by create a picture. Right? So once we have this picture, now we need to have improvement metrics. So how do we improve our transformation? Well, that's easy. We just let the picture guide us. Right? How easy is that? You say, no, that's not easy. How, how do we let this, 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 how do we let this, uh, this, this picture guide us? Well, we could use a force field analysis. If you're familiar with a force field analysis, it's pretty simple. It has really great synergy with sliders, right? Because what is supporting us goes on the left side. What is working against us goes on the right side. And we talk with people. So we describe the desired state and we say, no, we're not different this way. We're not like this new way. And people say, well, that's because, you know, the things that help us be like that, these things that are over here on the left and, you know, what's working against us are these things over on the right. Well, the closer it is to the middle is, is the stronger it's, in, it's affecting us, right? So we can start asking questions amongst people. If these are the forces that are keeping us not to where we want to be, we can ask, hey, what would this thing that is all the way you know, that isn't giving us strong support what can we do to increase the support so we can start to design experiments that are intended to improve us towards a new way of being right and we can ask hey these things that are really working against us what would make them like less of a block and so from this we can simply create experiments and then we try the experiments we try the changes and then a few months later we reassess the picture and we see if it's moved. The people sense that it's moved. We can also do something called perspective mapping, and I love this. I love, I learned this from Jason Little, and I love perspective mapping for transformation. Perspective mapping is basically, we've got our, our sliders, right? We have our sliders, new behavior, old behaviors, right? We map them out, we create the sliders, and then what we do is we figure out who are the parts of the system are. So in our simple example, let's pretend that we have a management part and a team part. And the management part, we say, cool, where do you see yourselves on here? And they say, cool, this is where we are. And then we sit down and we hide these. And then we sit down with the team. And the team, we say, where do we think we are? And the team go here. And then we show everything together. Well, clearly, we're in agreement that nothing's really changed with A, and we're definitely moving towards C. But look at the perspective on B. That's the thing that's holding us back. Right? We're not making progress because we don't have shared understanding. We diverge too much just to where we really are. And so this is where we focus our experimentation. Right? So the picture can guide us, and we just let it guide us. With the experiments and the things, we may decide we want metrics, we may decide we just want to run experiments, whatever, but this guides us towards our transformation. Okay, all right, so there's probably somebody there, oh, Zach, but ugh, these pictures and I need something to be quantitative. I just, ah, okay. I don't want you to be disappointed. So I have, a I have a quantitative metric for you for transformation. Please bear in mind that it is highly experimental 
and I made it up. But if you really want to use an experiment, if you really want to use quantitative metrics for measuring transformation, here's what you do. It's very, very, very simple. You basically just take the number of people that you have that you're trying to change, and then you multiply that by the number of people minus one divided by two for the complexity ratio. Then you divide it by the number of teams over one plus their dependencies. Then you multiply all of that times the, av the average um, release items that were planned versus the, uh, the number of release items that were done. Then you take that number and you divide it by the organizational median safety. <sighs> simple, right? But there you go. There's your quantitative metric. What do you get with this? You basically get some number, and because I made it up, I'm going to say that Dunbar's number is around 150. So if you're close to around 150, then it means you've probably got enough. There's, 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 there's not too much complexity in your environment to continue to change. There you go. So if you're over 150, then you should probably simplify some of these things. All right. Hopefully that satisfies you and your quantitative range. But honestly, I have tried this before, and I, it is actually designed to measure some important things, like the number of people we're using, um, the number of teams, their dependencies, memory, safety. So I've actually experimented with it, but if you do, let me know how it goes. I'd love to hear, <laughs> I'd love to hear if this actually works. Okay, let's recap then, right? So very simple framework. Right, for thinking about metrics, number one, measure up. Right, no matter what scenario you find yourself in, measure up and then identify your success metric. Right, once you have that identified, think about the improvement metrics that need to be in place to drive that success metric. Your goal with the improvement metrics is to make them go away. You want them to go away. That in of itself can be an improvement metric. How often do our improvement metrics go away? Right? And so when you use this framework across three tough scenarios, Productivity, remember, when we talk about productivity, we're really talking about effectiveness, right? Think about lead time, and then use components of lead time, like cycle time, to help improve it. Think about the environment that your developers are in, that time to build, and how the build affects parts outside of the system. And then use trends, like forecast deltas and ship ratios, to help really understand what your system of work is and what it's driving towards. When it comes to quality, your first time yield, again, for me, is everything. I think that's just a wonderful success metric. Um, what percentage of things actually come back to you, right? But then be qualitative. Be qualitative. Start there. Talk to your customers. Talk to your people. Only obsess around the quantitative side once you have a good understanding of what quality really means to your people. And lastly, as transformation, I mean, really, just ditch the quantitative aspect entirely. Ditch your, mat your maturity scores and your averages across things. Paint a picture, tell a story. That picture will guide you along the way. So I really appreciate your time and listening to my little discussion on, on prosperous metrics. And I want to say thanks to the phenomenal Dr. Dave Cornelius for inviting me to chat. Um, I had a good time. I hope you found this useful. And if there's anything that you'd like to discuss about metrics, feel free to get in touch with me. Um, thanks again and hope to see you out there somewhere in, in the Agile community. Thank you, Zach. This was, um, hey, dude, this was great. You know, every time we talk, I always learn something new, which is just amazing to be in that position. You know, I'm really grateful to know you and spend time with you. Um, no, this is, this is wonderful. So um, to, to everyone who gets an opportunity to um, listen and see this um, webinar, um, feel free to come to the Agile um, for Humanity Tucson Meetup 
And also we'll make sure that this gets published out also in the uh, Knowledge Share with Dr. Day podcast in that channel and also with within um, the Agile Alliance platform as well. So, you know, this was great. I mean, do you have any questions? Um, no? I just have one comment. I like that slide on the um, old behavior and the new behavior and then the management where they were on that slider and then the team. And that really paints a big picture yeah. for me um, because I work with a lot of teams and stuff and I work with a lot of management. So I'm trying to get the two together. <laughs> yeah. It's a constant struggle, but it'd be really cool to be able to start measuring that. Yeah. Yeah, um, perspective mapping is really powerful. Um, you know, you, especially if you keep it, you know, if you have the safety, of course, to be able to do it, but if you can take the various cohorts that represent the important parts of your system and you ask their perspective on where behavior is, you will hear, you will be able to capture stories as to what makes that true. Then you ask another cohort and if they differ, you're able to see really vividly like where that divergence is and why. And when you bring that awareness to both parties, it really creates the urgency to reconcile that. Um, it's a really powerful technique. Yeah, I think the synergy could be really good or really bad depending on how that's presented. But. And, yeah. and, that, and that goes back to having the safety to be able to, you know, <laughs> be able to change. You know, if, if one party really doesn't want to change or isn't willing to consider their, their contribution, then yeah, it will be difficult. Um, that's uh, that's Virginia Satir, and I think of her work on congruence. If people aren't willing to consider self in the context of you know change or whatever we're working towards, then yeah, we'll just they'll just be in a blaming configuration, and that's that's not good. Yeah, very good. Thank you. I appreciate everything you shared. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for your time. Yeah, brother Zach. We'll talk to you soon, and uh, oh, hopefully I'll see you soon too. So um, this was great, you know, come back again. Sure. Really appreciate it. Awesome. I had a good time. All right. Thanks, thanks buddy. Enjoy your Saturday. Thank you. You too. Bye. Okay. Bye. We would like to thank our sponsor, Nalshare, for the continued support for this podcast. Visit nalshare.org to achieve your awesomeness through agile coaching and training digital transformation strategy, agile organization development, lean business startup, and diversity and inclusion training. Thank you, Agile Alliance, for the Meta Pro account sponsorship. Learn more about Agile Alliance at www.agilealliance.org. We support lean thinking and agile life skills education through the Five Saturdays program. Visit www.5saturdays.org to donate your time, money, and knowledge. Check out Dr. Day's latest book, Elastic Minds, What Are You Thinking? on Amazon.com. You will also find his book, Transforming Your Leadership Character, The Lean Thinking and Agility Way on Amazon.com. Look for the Null Share with Dr. Day podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. The Null Share with Dr. Dave podcast is streamed on grokshare.com. If you have questions for Dr. Dave, reach out on Twitter at Dr. Cornelius Info or at Nalshare. This podcast is produced by Dr. Dave Cornelius. Copyright 2018. Nalshare. <laughs>